Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 161 of The Great Escape Minute, the daily podcast where we dig into The Great Escape one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me today is Dr. Becky O'Brien of Film Music Central. Welcome to the show, Becky. Hello. I'm glad I could be here. Yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been waiting all season to, to get you on this show because uh, I've, I've talked so much about the music, and finally I have someone who, who knows a little bit about music instead of me who's just, you know, talk, talking out of my rear end the whole time. <laughs> so uh, hopefully hopefully you'll, you'll actually have interesting things to say that won't contradict too much what I've said, but who knows? Maybe they will. No. We'll, we'll find out along the way. No promises. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Give it, give it your all. That's what, that's what, that's what you need to do. Episode one sixty one begins with Creason continuing to speak and goes all the way till Mac gives a rousing speech. As we discussed on Friday, basically what what has happened is Bartlett has finally been caught and he's been brought into the uh, Gestapo headquarters or wherever they're they're doing their uh, interrogations. And basically, Creason is quite pleased that they finally have have captured him. This is someone that he's wanted to catch throughout the entire movie. I mean, he was with Kuhn beforehand, but Kuhn actually was killed by Ashley Pitt a few weeks ago. So now we only have one of the two Gestapo men who brought Bartlett in into the camp at the beginning dealing with things. Uh, and he is very happy. Is that Oh, is that the one on the phone? No. The one on the phone is Dietrich. Sorry. Uh, Lieutenant Dietrich. We also have the SS officer Steinach, who's standing behind. He's the one who actually bring, brings Bartlett in. Uh, I don't know if you, you recognize, do you recognize the actor who plays him? Carl Otto Alberti? I Have you seen him before in anything? His He looks familiar, but I don't know where I've seen him. So he played the, the main German tank commander in Kelly's Heroes, Haven't who ended up splitting the money with them in the end. Uh, spoiler alert to anyone who hasn't seen it yet. He was also in uh, Battle of the Bulge, but he had a smaller part there. I'll have to go back. But, but he, he did look familiar to me. Yes. So, uh, so basically, Preston begins by starting this this minute by saying, "Herr Bartlett and Herr McDonald." At this point, basically, Roger gets to finally look over and sees that Mac is with him. Also, you know, they they split up last week when they were trying to get away from the the, the various uh, soldiers who were trying to capture them. So now he knows that he's also been caught. You know, he might have hoped that Mac somehow got away, but apparently not. You know, I like the the little touches. You know, Mac's just sitting there on a bench, looking completely defeated because, you know, he's also a little maybe disappointed, maybe a little ashamed because, you know, he was actually caught. And, you know, both of them have handcuffs well, on. It's not just how he was, it's how he was caught that he should be ashamed of because it's the oldest trick in the book and he fell for it. Especially since he was, you know, we, we had him a few weeks ago, a few months ago, actually, say something to Haynes about that, that uh, he's got to be careful not to get caught up by that. And he himself gets caught up by it, but... You know, that, that's some of the nice parts of the script. You know, they're able to, to go back on other things. I mean, one of the things I love about this movie is it's basically, and this is something that Sturgis mentions in his commentary to this movie that was on the Laserdisc and also appears on the Criterion Connect collection, you know, years after he already passed. But one of the things he mentions is the fact that so many people wanted him to cut down the movie, and he couldn't because the way that the story is built up, it's built on so many building blocks that if you pull one of them out... Everything just falls apart because you need all the different pieces to this puzzle. That's one of them. <laughs> what can you do? You know, the connections between the conversations, between the characters, you know, even, you know, the fact that Mac said something, you know, days before to someone and he fell for it himself. 
So, you know, that's another well, good yeah, example. Exactly. I mean, this, this whole movie is full of counterpoints like that. And and this 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 moment is, is one of my favorites. But I don't think you haven't gotten to the line he said yet. That reminds me of it. So Prison then says, we are together again. You're going to wish you had never put us to so much trouble. Yeah. yeah. Is that the line? Or we're not yeah, that, yeah, that's the line because it reminds me. Uh, I think it's meant to also remind you of the threat he makes to Roger at his introduction scene. I think it was actually mm-hmm. Kuhn who says it in the beginning says, as a reminder, if he escapes one more time and gets caught, he'll be shot. And so I'm pretty sure, yes. what's his name? You said Preston? Right. Um, and, and so Preston, you know, saying, you know, you're going to wish you'd never done this is like a reminder they're going to follow through on this threat in case anyone had any doubts that they would. Yeah. I mean, as as we know, unfortunately, they take that threat a little further than they were suggesting well, yeah, because, at the time. Because, because it's not just Roger who escaped. It was a bunch of others. Yes. Right. I mean, anyone who knows the real story knows that that, that in the end it was it was Hitler himself who made the decision to yeah. to do this. Which is just amazing that it reached such well, high levels. I, I read the book that all this is it was adapted from, and what I read said um actually when Hitler found out, he wanted them all shot, not just fifty. Um, he wanted he wanted all these people yes. shot, and it took and his officers had to talk him down from it because, you know, they were thinking you know if the shoe was on the other foot, we would have done the same thing. So they finally talked him down to fifty to be shot and. That's how how it happened. Right. Well, actually, the I, I just looked again to see who says it, and it's actually what I say his name was Krieger. He's the one who oh. says it. Um, it's not either of the two that we thought. That's the Dietrich. I don't know why I keep calling him Krieger. Okay, Dietrich. Dietrich is actually the one who says that if if he once more falls into our hands, he will not be so lucky. That's what he said. No, there's someone, but but there's a line after that where he explicitly says, "You will be shot if if, if you escape once more and are caught." So, so, so there's two lines. It, 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 that it, is very possible. No, I remember it's the very last thing the Gestapo person says to Roger before they leave. I've never, I, I've never learned their separate names, so I don't know who says it, but I know they said it. Right. That's, Kuhn says it. You're right. He says, "If you escape yep, again that, and be caught, you will be shot." There you go. Okay. So Kuhn says it, which is somewhat ironic that he's the one who says it and he's the one who gets shot. Probably intentional. I mean, again, they, they have some a lot of great connections uh, throughout the whole movie. So there's there's no question about the fact that, that it is very possible that this is what was planned by, by Sturgis when, when he put it all together. Basically, what what's funny is, is that the way that he says the line, you know, you're going to wish you'd never put us in so much trouble. It also reminds us of the fact that, that this was mm-hmm. Roger's plan all along. You know, his plan was, is hopefully we're going to get a few people to escape. But the idea more is to tie up as many of the Germans as possible. And, I mean, mm-hmm. as as we've seen, they've done that. You know, even even when you have the, the scene where McQueen is, is, is uh, trying to jump over the fence, there I, I'm able to, I've counted, <laughs> I think, over 50 guards that were there. So 50 on one. Well, that well, That's just amazing. That's amazing you know, that you counted, like, because uh, it's true, like, at the very end, there's, like, swarms of Germans after him at the, at the very last moment, like, I, I didn't realize it was so many, mm-hmm. though. Yes, there's, there's, I think, 28 coming from one side, and 30-something coming from the other side, if I remember correctly. I discussed this a few weeks ago, so I, I have to, I'd have to go back to my notes to see the exact numbers, but, but I did figure it out. 
because it was. Uh, I mean, that's what happens. That's what you do when you when you go through a movie minute by minute. You need to find all these little interesting tidbits along the way. You know, things that people don't notice when they're first watching it, or when they've watched it fifty times or whatever, unless they've done it at this type of speed. Because there's 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 always what to find. You know, and uh, I mean, even if you just look around at the core of this room, you know, look at the the lighting. It looks like they're in some sort of castle. You know, some old old time castle or something like that. You know, the way that the doors are, and the, the there's like a chest that's carved in. In a very strange way. I mean, this, well, this looks like is, antiques. It is Germany in the 40s, so it very easily could be a castle, too. I'll, yeah, of course. Although, although, although with the low exactly. ceiling, I, mean, I always thought more of a castle dungeon, more specifically. Because it is the Gestapo, after all. Okay, it could be that it is the, a, a dungeon because of the fact that, that outside of this room, they mm-hmm. theoretically are put, keeping the prisoners. Um, so they, they apparently have one large room in the dungeon mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of smaller rooms. That is very possible. So basically, the, the Priestin is, as I've said numerous times today, he's very pleased with himself. He knows that he's done this right. He's finally captured the ringleader. Even though they never explicitly... They, they said, you know, at the beginning when they brought him in, they said that they, they have reason to believe that he's the ringleader. But they they've, they never were able to prove it then, and they're not able to prove it now well, that's either. That's true. They, they, they never do... At least they never say it out loud that they know, but I yeah. I just, I have a strong feeling that with this last escape, they may have finally figured it out, but they, they just never said so. I, I, I've learned that just because something isn't said doesn't mean it's not believed by the characters, so. I, Correct. I mean, that that's important, the, the fact that, that uh, you know, they, they can't tell us everything. There's certain things that characters know that that we aren't privy to, and uh, it's based on their opinions. Yeah, you know, it's just I guess it wasn't important enough for them to to try and prove it, which is fine. I, you it, know, we we know the truth, <laughs> even if Preston doesn't know the truth. I'm, we although do. Although that could explain why, but that would explain why he's so pleased with himself because he knows he's finally cap, he's finally confirmed this is the ringleader, and he's got him. Or, on the other hand. He he just doesn't like Bartlett for everything that, that, that has been going on, and he's happy that they're actually going to shoot Bartlett. Whether he's the ringleader or not, he's he's suspected of being the ringleader, so we'll get rid of him anyway. You know, could be. And I love the way that he's sitting there with his with his arms folded in front of him, you know, very, very pleased with himself. These, you know, the, 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 the actor who plays him, Ulrich Beiger. Never heard of him before, never but seen him. You always remember else. him for this. Um, I, I mean, he's... That's, you know... Just... Oh, the way his voice comes across in this scene, it's so oily and evil. Yes, and that's what they want. That's what they're and then and then I love the way that, that you know, he he has those buttons next to him and instead of pushing one of them, he just puts his whole hand down on you know, like no whammy, no whammy, press you know, press it's your like luck. He's, he's, he's like he's on a he's like a king on a throne. Well, he's sitting on a chair that looks like True. a throne. True. <laughs> Goes back, to, goes back to the antique structure of everything. At this point, he just presses on a bunch of buttons. Maybe he's just like, trying to figure out whichever one works, you know. Because um, earlier, he pressed on a button when Cavendish was in the room. He pressed on one button to call someone to come into the room and take Cavendish out. But here, he puts his hand down and is is pressing four or five buttons at well, the see, same time. See, I never saw it that way. I always thought I could see like his, one of his middle fingers just reaching down to, 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 to flick on one, and he he just happened to lay his whole hand down, a sort of a grand gesture. And I, 
Um, that is possible. And, and and given how the scene transitions, I, I always saw him as like he's just pressing the button to set the next thing in motion. And right, I, no, he puts his hand, he puts his whole hand on there, and you see his palm pressing down. So it's not even it's not one finger that's pressing down. Maybe maybe he he's very precise and is able with his palm just to push one of the buttons. That is possible. Or it, or it so <laughs> happened that the take was so good they didn't bother to shoot another one, even though. That could be Even true. though he's pressing down on multiples and it wouldn't make sense with that kind of technology. But so, sometimes it, sometimes the take is just so good, they'll overlook that just because. Well, they they never expected that, that 59 years later, people would be dissecting the movie minute by minute. So well, would that is true, but here we are. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> Immediately after he, he presses that the, the buttons... The, the scene changes, and we get to see an outdoor shot where it's early morning. You see the, the, the there's a little bit of light, not a lot of light, but, you know, you can tell that, it, that it's somewhat near is, dawn. Or is it uh, evening? But, I've never been able to tell. I believe it's dawn because later on when we talk about it, you see, like, mist and stuff like that. It seems more as if uh, the sun is coming up as opposed okay. to going down. I've always assumed that, but I could be wrong. And at this point, we, we get a very interesting rendition of music here. So maybe well, you want to talk I, about the music. I, I've been waiting, and ever since you invited me on to talk about this, this is why I wanted to pick this moment. Um, because this scene, it took me dozens of rewatches to catch on to this, but with the music being what it is, the scene with the trucks in this minute is a literal bookend to the opening shot of the film. Now, in the opening shot of the film, the trucks, we have the happy, upbeat main theme of the f- film to take us along to the Stalag. But now we again have a shot of trucks, but it's this macabre funeral march, basically. We've got the heavy organ, the drum beat. There the complete opposite of what we got at the opening in terms but it's the same music just different instruments is that not so far as i can tell no this is um because remember the main theme is this is not that un un i mean now i can't say for certain without looking at the score it's entirely possible bernstein has slowed it down and is using similar notes but I really don't think so. This is more of a, just a couple long chords on an organ to set the tone of like something really bad is about to happen. I mean, plus the fact that it's the out the it's darker outside. Um, heck, there's even storm clouds. There's even clouds in this. It's even a dark, cloudy sky. Even it's mm-hmm. which is again. To the opposite of the opening shot, which was blue sky, sunshine, there's hope. Total opposite here. It's cloudy. It's dark. We have a chilling organ music to send the trucks along. Something really bad is going to happen. And wow! It, wow. Okay, that that's great yeah. insight. You, I mean, I could hear it also in in the music that it's that it's somewhat you know tense music, but it's but it's also somewhat. It sounded to me it still being some sort of a, a military march, 
Well, yeah, and that's because of the drum beats and stuff. And that mm-hmm. makes sense because, you know, I mean, they're all military men anyway. They're being taken away by the Gestapo and the military to be shot. So there's going to be that martial sound there, too. It, but, but also, if you think about it with the drum beats, where else do you hear drum beats like that in, um, when a firing squad is getting ready to be set up? You know, mm-hmm. you think about that, oh, wow. mar- that martial set. I mean, granted, this isn't quite the same thing, but... Um, it's implied. Okay. Oh, wow, that's great. I mean, I heard something that Bernstein thought of the original tune of the movie when he was 14 and was waiting for the right movie to be able to use it. I had not, I had not read that, but I, I can definitely believe that. Um, I mean, that's, and that's how brilliant composers can be sometimes. They'll come up with melodies and all it needs is the right film to make it work. Yeah. And, and and sometimes, funnily enough, you'll hear it more than once if it works for more than one film. Yes, that's true. There are there are themes in this in this movie that sound similar to Ghostbusters. There, well, my favorite is um, it's well, so I sh- it's a side note, but it, in the opening of the theme, there's a bit that sounds like it comes right out of the Magnificent Seven. Okay, Bernstein did that also, right? Yeah, he did. Which. Yeah. In, in fact, I believe that was before this film, too. Yes, so. it was. It was three, three years before. So, so, so yeah, it would totally make sense that he might quote part of it if it happened to work. Hmm, interesting. But, um, well, lots of composers do that. Um, yeah. And they do it in a subtle way. That well. You, that you won't so, always notice it. And if you're not, if you're, if you're not a music expert, you're not necessarily <laughs> going to notice it. Well, that's true, but some are still like the late James Horner. Some were less subtle than others. Okay, that's true. That's true. Horner okay. was fairly guilty, but I digress. <laughs> I know you're a fan of Horner. I'm aware of that. I am. I am. And I, par- I partake every year <laughs> in that indulgence of yours. Really? So that's fine. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Okay, so basically the the scene continues. You know, we have the the trucks rolling through the through the night again. We're we're not one hundred percent sure if this is dusk or dawn. We'll, we'll we'll maybe get to that soon. I like the procession. Basically, you have a staff car followed by a truck, motorcycle, truck, motorcycle, truck, motorcycle, mm-hmm. which uh, is something that they didn't have at the very beginning. At the very beginning, when they showed them all, there wasn't something in between each of the trucks. You know, separating them. It, I mean, obviously, there's a reason why they have them. You know, uh, they have a motorcycle yeah. set up for each of them here. But in the opening, it was just there was a car in yes. front of the trucks. Yes, 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 but there wasn't there. there wasn't something in between each of the trucks. There was a procession of trucks, exactly. one after the other. That that that's what I'm saying. Yeah, right. And then we get an internal shot of one of the trucks, and we get to see Roger and Mac and Haynes and Cavendish, who are basically the only four that we've seen captured in this whole movie, you know, that were shot. Yeah. And, you know, when Cavendish showed up a few weeks ago and he was put in the dungeon, so he bumped into Haynes. And now we have Roger and Mac. So we have the four of them sitting together. Mac and Roger begin to have a very interesting conversation, which is, is quite telling for the entire movie. I mean, this is uh, more or less the, the, the bookend of their, their whole story that will start today and continue into tomorrow. Basically, then Mac says, what's troubling you, Roger? And Roger responds, I'm just a little surprised. I expected either a long stay or a short trip. So Mac then agrees with him. And then Roger says, I have to admit, I'm a little worried, though. I hope to God I haven't blotted 70-odd ledgers. Now, you know, it's that I found that very interesting that he says 70-odd. 
as opposed to saying the specific number of 76. Now, we know the 76 got out. Roger theoretically should also know because they know the numbers, you know, the what number everyone was in, in the escape order because they knew that, I guess, Cavendish was 76. He was the last one to get out. How do we know Cavendish was 76? How does who know? Oh, but... Well... I, I thought there was I thought there was one more after. No, there no. was. Griffiths, oh, no, Griffiths got out, but then he got caught. So Griffiths was number 77. That's right. That's what exactly. I forgot. Now, in the original script, it actually did say 76. He says, I hope they got a heaven blotted 76 ledgers. Why did they... Does no, it say? no, I don't. I don't have. I don't have notes as to why things were changed. But my assumption is, is that it makes more sense for him to, to, you know, he doesn't need to be as precise. If he would be precise, people might ask the question. You know, they might start wondering, how does he know specifically seventy six? We know that seventy six got out, so it's possible that Roger, with his phenomenal memory and you know his ability to put everything together, would have figured it out. But it, it sounds a little better for him just to say seventy odd, and that's it. Is, is, is it also possible that he's hedging his bets because maybe he's counted up and realized they're not all there? Well, he, and so he, he knows doesn't, they're not all there. He doesn't That's know. true. So maybe he's hedging and thinking maybe at least a few got right. away. Okay, that could be also. And then Mac has a very interesting speech that he gives here responding to oh. it. Where he, well, well before, before he says that, though, there's one thing I want to say about what Roger says about hoping he hasn't blotted out okay, the ledgers. I just find it, I've always found that a little ironic that he's worried about that now, after all he's done this. Like, I, I thought I thought he'd made it clear that he, they had to do whatever was necessary to cause trouble, so surely he knew going in that this was a distinct possibility. So why is he worried about it now? Well, he's worried about it because he, he finally got caught, and he sees, you know, 50 other people caught with him. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe his, so, his you know, before, and I mean, the, he in the original script... I discussed this a few months ago, I guess. The whole fact there was a big argument between him and one of the other characters about what their main goal is here. I think it might have been with Hiltz. He said that he's willing to take the, the chance that, that a number of the prisoners are going to get caught and shot in order to fulfill what they're trying to do by opening up another front. So, I, you know, the fact that he's worried about it now, it's because now it's become a reality, I think, as opposed to him just considering it. Beforehand, he didn't consider, he, you know, every, every one of the 76 who got out assumed that they were going to be able to make it to freedom. They all had their plans of how they're going to go. Mm-hmm. Obviously, 73 of them didn't figure it out properly. But so when you look at it, you know, it's so Roger had high hopes that, that he was going to be able to make it and everyone else was able to make it and as many as possible. But at this point, he sees how many were captured and, you know, is, is wondering what's going to happen to them. So he's concerned at this point because it would be all on him, you know. Yep. So then Mac gives his uh, speech. I'm going to read the whole speech and then I'm going to go back to, because there's something I want to point out about that he says it. So he goes, oh, no, no, we're all over 21, footloose and fancy free. We'd never have gotten as far as we did without you, Roger. For what it's worth, I think you did a damn good job. I think we all do. Obviously, this is complete fiction. Nobody knows what was really said between the two of them or between mm-hmm. the real Roger Bouchel and whoever was with him at the time. Uh, we also know that, that in real life they were shot in gro- in smaller groups, sometimes in pairs, sometimes one on their own, you know, individually. Yeah. I think there I think there was a point where they shot four of them at once. I think that was like the most. 
based on what I can remember. Yeah, but the filmmakers were on record saying they did it this way because of the drama yes, and, of course. Su- and such. I, I like it this way. It makes it much, much... I mean, have you ever seen the, the pseudo-sequel to this movie? The Great Escape 2, The Untold Story? No. Okay, so that's a made-for-TV movie that came out in 1988 with Christopher Reeve, uh, Judd Hirsch, and a few others. It's it's not as good as this movie, but it does stick more to the real story. It's also three hours long, so it's even longer than this movie. It's like six minutes longer, so take that take that into consideration before you watch it. But in that in that movie, it, they show it more accurately the way that they were they were shot in smaller groups. Mm-hmm. But I like the way they did it here for dramatic purposes. It it it, it feels even more sentimental the way that they do it here, where you just get you know a bunch a group of them shot all at once. Mm-hmm. Now the the one thing I, I I wanted to discuss was Max's use of the phrase "footloose and fancy free." Oh, because I, I I was curious where that phrase comes from. I mean, this is something that 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 you don't hear that often. Obviously, you know, most of us have heard of the movie Footloose. Uh, yeah, but and they don't mention the movie. They don't mention the phrase "fancy free." Is it not accurate to the times? No, it's it's actually very accurate. I looked it up to see what it means. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not. It, it is accurate to the time, but it doesn't make as much sense when you hear what it means. So the, the, the definition that I found online was is that it, what footloose and fancy free means is that it's for saying that these that the characters are not married or in a similar relationship and you therefore consider them to have fewer responsibilities or commitments. Well, see, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, they, they chose people to escape that if they got caught and shot, it wouldn't affect families as much over back home. No, first of all, that's not true. They, they, you know, there were, there were married men that, that, that were chosen also. But, but, but I mean, in the context of the film. In the context of the film, we never know. But, we don't know if any of these characters are married or not. But, we know that, that Cavendish, they say to him, you know, you're gonna, never, never going to see your wife again. And he goes, you've got the wrong man. I'm not even married. Now, he could have been saying that truthfully, or it could have been just his way of of uh, trying to throw them off. I, I guess I, I'm a very literal-minded person, so if I take what's said in the movie at face value, um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I don't understand it. No, no, no. Go ahead. Say say what you well, want to say. I, I would just, we're allowed to, we're allowed to disagree here. I was just I was just saying. It, I mean, I know it. It adds to the drama. I, I but no, I know in real life that a lot of the ones who were shot. Of course, there were ma- married ones and not. But if we take it at face value in the film's version of reality, he's just trying to reassure Roger that you know, you know, we all. I always took it as saying, like, forget the definition. I always took it as him saying, we went into, into this with our eyes open. Don't beat... Yeah, completely. Don't don't beat yourself up for this. We all knew what we signed up for. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I just found it funny that that's the phrase that they yeah. chose to use. That's the thing, because it just, yeah. it, it, you know, that what they're trying to say is, okay, we're, we're, we're... I mean, it's funny they say we're all over 21. You know, people, people were drafted at the age of 18. So... <laughs> That in and of itself, you know, is is a little bit yeah. different, and and also if you look at the ages of some of these these actors, yeah, I mean, Gordon Jackson is was forty when they made this, or thirty thirty nine when he made this. Was was that McDonald? Yes. Okay. Gordon Jackson is McDonald, and Attenborough was was of a similar age. Or was born also in nineteen twenty three. Yes, they're they're both the same age. The two of them. McQueen was younger. McQueen was born in nineteen thirty. 
So he was only 32, 33 when they made this. Garner, a little older than McQueen, he was born in 28. So he was... Donald, Donald Pleasance was in World War II, so that's, that's what that tells yes. you. Correct. You know, it's interesting just looking at the fact, I mean, Pleasance was born in 1919. So when they made this movie, he was 40, 42, 43, depending on when, you know, when it was filmed. Yeah, that's been a thing in Hollywood for years, though, of casting people who are technically not the correct age to be doing what they're doing. But yeah, no, of course not. I'm when has that ever stopped them? And that's basically how the, the minute ends. So do you have anything else you want to say about this minute? No, that pretty much summed it all up. All right. Excellent. So you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, if you want to find me on my blog, Film Music Central can be found at www.filmmusiccentral.com. Or if you want to find me on YouTube, I also have a channel under Life as a Music Gamer. Music Gamer is one word. Or you want to find me on uh, Twitter at MusicGamer460. All right, excellent. We hope that you go and rate, review, and subscribe on any podcatcher they might be using to listen to this show. You can send us an email, thegreatminute at gmail.com. Our Facebook group is The Cooler. Our website is thegreatescapeminute.com. And our Twitter account is greatescapemxm. Becky, you want to come back in tomorrow? Of course. All right. So until tomorrow, tally-ho. Tally-ho. Tally-ho.